Luke 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from him into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray together. Lord, grant, I pray, that we would have truth and life and joy in what you've, t- what you've written for us in your word. Yes, we love that it's a holiday, some, some are more holiday than others, but it's not about that, God. This is true word of God. May we be impacted by the glorious accounting of the birth of your Son. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So again, it's Christmas Day or almost Christmas Day. It's on the way, right? Everyone's ready. Everyone's excited. No one is stressed. We turn to the words of Luke. Words inspired by God to see one more time the account of the thing that you are supposed to be celebrating if you're celebrating. So we're not going to waste any time. Let's learn a few simple points and let's prepare our hearts for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Okay? Fair enough. Point number one. I think there's six of these. Praise God for his sovereignty. Praise God for his sovereignty. You knew that was going to happen in a Reformed church, right? Here we go. Luke 2, verses 1 through 5. Again, they say, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, <clears throat> to, Judah, or to, to, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. All right. In those days is where we start. Now, what's the question you should be asking? What days? In those days, which days? What days? What days are we talking about? Well, we know from an earlier section, this is during, we know that this is during the reign of Augustus. Augustus was a Caesar, a Roman emperor. He reigned from 27 BC through 14 AD. So we have outer parameters set. If, if Augustus is ruling, it's between 27 A BC and 4 AD. He, and Augustus, by the way, was the grand nephew. He was a successor of Julius Caesar. Oh, stop it. And Augustus, he sent out a decree. He sent out a binding Roman law over the Roman Empire that all the people be counted in a census. This, we see, was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's going to make the parameters get a little narrower for us. History uh, tells us that there was a man named Quirinius, Publius Silpicius Quirinius, for anybody who wanted to know that. He had authority in Syria at two separate times during two separate censuses. Well, the census that's spoken of here was ordered, according to historical records, in the year 8 B.C. Now, if we also recall that Herod the Great was ruling in Judea when Jesus was born, see Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2, that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., we can gather that the birth of Jesus Christ would have historically taken place somewhere between the years 8 and 4 B.C. Don't let the B.C. fool you because, you know, that's just how people did their best to guess the timing here. But Now, it's during that time it's during, we know who was reigning. We can place the year within four years or so. And now we see, it's during the time of the census, that all of the people of Israel had to go to their ancestral hometowns to be registered. This was like the worst DMV trip you've ever imagined. And so Joseph leaves Nazareth in the northern part of Israel in Galilee with Mary to travel down south near Jerusalem to Bethlehem, the city of David, about six miles outside of Jerusalem. And Luke tells us, in case that you don't know the story, that Mary, who went with Joseph from uh, Galilee down to Judea, was with child. Now, if you know how this story wraps up, you realize she was really with child. You know what I mean? I mean, she was right ready to give birth. Why in the world would she have traveled from north to south during that time? My guess is that the, that the deadline for the census registration was right on the horizon. Joseph may have waited as long as he could, hoping maybe to have this baby born before the travel took place, but he couldn't. And so he's got to go. He's got to go south and, and for some reason, he brings Mary along with him. Maybe, maybe the law said that he had to bring her. 
Maybe he just didn't want to leave her alone with no support because she was young and she was pregnant and everybody knew that the baby was not conceived while she was married. Maybe, maybe there was some other reason that he brought her with him. But for whatever reason, Mary joined Joseph and they traveled really anywhere from probably five days to one week uh, of walking from the northern part of Israel to the south. By the way, ladies who have had babies, what do you think? Right before the due date, doing a five-day journey on foot, what do you think? Yes? No? I'm not hearing any takers on this, like it's a good idea. Now, before we go on and see the rest of this great account, we need to pause right here, and this is where we learn our first point, to praise God for God's great sovereignty. Praise God that God controls human circumstances in amazing ways to accomplish the will of God. See, the fact that Jesus was even born in Bethlehem is a testimony to the sovereign grace of God. Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. That was a long way from Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary would never have chosen to travel to Bethlehem on their own, especially not while Mary was close to giving birth. The only way is that they would have done so is if it were completely necessary for them to do so. And ask yourself, what made it necessary for Joseph and Mary to leave Galilee and travel down south? A decree went forth from a pagan king to have all of his people counted. And the decree, when it got to Israel, included the provision that all the people who were to be counted had to go to their ancestral homes to register. And so Joseph and Mary, who were both of David's tribe and David's family line, they had to be registered in the town of Bethlehem. And so the decree's timing and the decree's enforcement were absolutely perfect. If this decree had been issued earlier or later, Jesus would not have been born in Bethlehem. But in order to fulfill the plan of God and in order to fulfill a promise made by God hundreds of years earlier, Micah 5.2, the timing of the decree, the wording of the decree, the enforcement of the decree all fit together to bring about God's ultimate perfect will. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Do you guys buy that? I hope you do, because otherwise it would be hard to have hope in a ugly political world. But God is sovereign. God is in control. No king, no ruler, no president, no person on earth is outside of God's ability to change them. God can move people as he wishes. God does move people as he wishes to accomplish his will. God is never powerless to make his will come to pass. God is the sovereign God who turns the hearts of kings, even pagan kings like Augustus Caesar, to his will and to his purposes. So friends, take pleasure in the fact that God is sovereign and marvel that God can use anybody at any time to accomplish anything thing that he desires. So yeah, praise God for his sovereignty. Then, because we're almost to the story, point number two, marvel at Jesus's humble birth. 
marvel at Jesus' humble birth. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. We got a lot of detail in that earlier section, right? Augustus, Quirinius, Syria, Herod, decree. We knew who was in charge. We knew what was happening as the event happened. It really feels like Luke almost changes the way he's writing here to give us a very general, very simple, very non-detailed, very understated account of what happens. Like, this is the part that, that we want the movie to be made about, right? And look at how little we get. It came to be the time Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. That's it. No pictures. No dramatic moment. No supernatural language or Hebrew poetry. Do you know what that verse says? Mary had a baby. That's it. Everything about this, it's just ordinary, except for one thing. She gave birth. That's normal. She wrapped the child in cloths. That's normal for that time. But the child's first bed is a little interesting. Luke tells us that Mary laid her baby in a manger because there was no room in the inn. When you think of an inn, don't think of a hotel. Don't think of an inn like you would see that, you know, the, the people stopped off in at the Green Dragon in Lord of the Rings or whatever. It's not that. Likely, what Luke's talking about is a common area in the town of Bethlehem where travelers could just stop and freely stay. They, they had to make provisions for themselves. There was no serving going on here. There'd be an outer wall that surrounds a series of little shanty, I mean, totally little, little small structures, little rooms, barely enough structure to keep people out of the elements. But behind them, behind those structures, maybe in the middle, like in a little central court area, there would be a spot where people could keep their animals. And Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary, they were unable to get a place in one of even the little shanties, so they had to stay with the animals. There's nothing nice about this. There's nothing quiet about this. It was probably not particularly clean. It was not... I'll tell you this. It was not the way a king is supposed to be born. But... It is exactly what God had planned for the humble arrival of the Son of God. So, the single greatest, or at least among maybe the two single greatest events in human history, if you want to include the resurrection here, the greatest event in human history took place not in a palace, not in a beautiful temple, not on a mountaintop, but in a smelly, noisy, barely private, if private at all, animal stall. And the greatest man ever to live, the God-man, 
sent his, spent his first night sleeping in an animal's feeding trough. Why would God do that? Well, first of all, we know, why does God do everything God does? Why does he do what he does? For God's purposes, for God's glory, right? So one thing that God is making clear to us in, in many passages of Scripture, Jesus, when Jesus was born, he humbled himself greatly. It was a great act of love. It was a great act of humility for the Son of God to step out of heaven's glory and to become a man. And how much more fitting than for that same Son of God to be born in the lowliest, poorest possible of conditions. Jesus' birth was not above the station of anybody in the world. Even the poorest of the poor and the weakest of the weak and the most oppressed of the oppressed can identify with a birth and a crib like that of Jesus's. So take time. If you're going to think about Christmas, if you're going to praise God for his sovereignty as you think about the birth of the Savior, praise God for doing it in a beautiful, amazing, humble way. Marvel at the humble birth of Jesus. Be, be amazed and thank God because it shows you he was sending Jesus for poor people like us. Then, third point, find joy and salvation in the good news of Jesus. Look at 8 through 12. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So on the hillsides around Bethlehem, shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks. They're protecting the sheep from thieves, from predators, you would almost guess that the sheep that the shepherds are watching over here, they were so close to, to Jerusalem, they might have been destined to be used in the sacrificial service of the temple. You know, it's hard to say. How appropriate then would it be that God would first inform those men, lowly men, humble men, blue-collar workers, of the arrival of the true sacrificial lamb? An angel appeared. He stood near the shepherds. Now, don't get a picture in your mind of some woman with wings and a pretty dress fluttering up in the sky. Instead, you, it says, we see angels that say they look like a man. Taking that type of a form, standing on the ground near the shepherd. Now, the difference in this man's appearance is that the glory of God in dazzling, brilliant, blinding light was shining around him as a messenger from God. And the shepherds were filled with fear. That doesn't surprise you, does it? Aren't you afraid every time you see a glowing person? You would be, right? But it's not just that. They've come into contact of the, with a glimpse of the holiness of God shining off this angel. Only, only when we see the glory of God do you and I realize how great God is and how deeply sinful you and I are. 
We fear because we realize when we see the glory of God that we are in the presence of somebody so powerful, he could destroy us simply by removing his life-giving breath from us. And we fear because we realize he should destroy us. We're sinful. We're not good enough to be in God's presence. And as is the norm when angels appear, the angel tells the shepherds, don't be afraid. You're not in danger at this point. And the angel gives a really important message from God. The angel brings good news. He says, I've got good news of great joy for all the people. The birth of Jesus is good news, not bad news. That's good, right? God's coming to earth at that moment is a good, good thing. He's not coming to judge and destroy the world at that time, though he rightly could have if he wanted to. This is news of great joy. We should be overjoyed about this news. The Bible says this is good news of great joy, which means this news should give you great joy. And this news is for all the people. It's for kings and it's for shepherds. It's for men and it's for women's. It, women's women. It's for rich and it's for poor people. It's for young people and people well advanced in years. It's for Jews and it's for Gentiles. It is good news for all the people. And then verse 11 tells, tells us what the angel has to bring. Unto you a child is born. Now stop for a second. Who's the angel talking to? Shepherds, don't you think that if we're going to say the child was born unto anybody, it would be poor Mary? This baby is not just for Mary. This child is born to the human race. The angel's words draw to mind the prophecy of Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, which says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The angel tells us, friends, like we're the shepherds because so, we, we rank a lot with those kind of guys. The angel tells us that the child is born to us in the city of David, right where he should have been born. And he tells us that the child is going to be a savior, Christ the Lord. What's the word savior mean? Think about this, especially if you're a child here, if you're a little one. You, you hear the word savior, don't you? What's it mean? It means he's going to be a rescuer. You guys ever hear of somebody being rescued before? Yeah. A, a savior is someone who, who rescues you and, and, and pulls you out of great danger. Jesus, the baby to be born, is going to be a savior, a, a rescuer. He's going to rescue us and preserve us from being destroyed. That's good news. And it's going to call him, he says he's going to be the Christ. That's, that's a Greek way of saying the word Messiah. This rescuer 
is the anointed king. He's the chosen king. He's the promised king. He's the one God from the very beginning has said, I'm sending this one into the world because the Old Testament is God promising and promising and promising and promising and promising to send a savior to rescue people from their sins. And the angel is telling the shepherds, guess what, guys? The one that God has promised and promised and promised and promised from Genesis through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all the way through. He's here. He's finally here. Then verse 12, the shepherds, they get a little bit of confirmation. They need to know which child is the right child. When y'all go to Bethlehem, you're going to find a newborn child wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Well, that's, that's good to know which one, right? How do you respond to those words of God? Well, it's good news. If it's good news, what should you do? You should be happy, right? When you get good news, good news makes you happy. It is news of great joy, so you should rejoice. You should celebrate this good news. You should party over this news. You should sing about this news, you should praise God and give God thanks for this news. This is news for all people. We should share this story and this joy with every single person we can share it with because it's good news for all people. By the way, we should make sure that this news, that we understand this news is for all kinds of people too. So you know what? We let the fact that this is good news for all people make sure that we don't ever look at any people out there, people who look like us, who look different than us, who have more money than us, who have less money than us, who've had easier lives than us or harder lives than us. We don't let any of those things divide us because we all share one good news that is for all the people. And then we say this is the news of a Savior, so we go to that one to be saved. If he's the Savior, we need to go to him that he might save or rescue us. That's what we do with this news. Fourth point now, speak praise to God and blessing to his people. Speak praise to God and blessing to his people. 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. So we had the angel send the, shep send the shepherds to Bethlehem. We, we knew this guy. We met him last verses. They're going to go find the newborn king. Well, before they go, a whole nother group of angels joins in. So this is just described as a multitude. You know how many angels that is? A lot. That's what it is. And the shepherds who saw a multitude of angels where there weren't a multitude of angels standing before are scared. Can you imagine if you were scared of one angel showing up, all of a sudden you have a whole hillside full of these god glorifying messengers, this would be a really neat moment. And the angels, they came to praise the Lord. They came to bless the people of God. They came to say, this is good what's about to happen. They praise God. They offer God glory. They offer God glory in the highest. That's fitting God, isn't it? God is the highest. God is the most glorious being in the universe and beyond, right? There's nothing more glorious than God. God is highest. He is worthy of glory. He's worthy of glory in the highest. He's worthy of the highest possible glory. You speak glory in the highest way to this God in the highest. You can't overdo this. That's 
praising God. And then the angels speak blessing and peace, look at that, to all of the people with whom God is pleased. Please notice the peace pronounced by the angels is not for those who hate and oppose God. You see that there? There are enemies of God. The Bible has always been abundantly clear that there is no peace for someone who is oblivious to God, who ignores God, who continually disobeys God, who intentionally blasphemes God. There is no peace with God for those people so long as they do not repent and find the Savior. But those who please God, those who are the people of God, those who have received the grace of God, they have peace with God. Two things we want to learn to do from the things we see the angels do in these verses. First, we need to learn to speak praise to God in the highest. Wouldn't you agree that God is still as worthy of praise today as he was on the evening Jesus was born? Yeah. He's still God most high. He's worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise that is sincere and reverent and high and special and joyous. Friends, don't you dare let yourself fail to offer God praise with your lips. Make that praise as high and as glorious as befits the Lord your God. Don't skimp on God, right? Don't skimp on God. I don't like singing. God's worthy of your praise. I don't like saying Bible words. It just feels awkward to me. God is worthy of praise in the highest. Church feels formal to me. God is worthy of your praise. Don't give God your cheap leftovers. Don't give God only what, oh, well, if I feel like it, I'll praise you, God. Give him your best. If you don't feel like praising God, pray that God will change your feelings, that you will feel like praising him and praise him anyway. Offer God real praise, genuine praise, high praise. Praise God for God's glory. Praise God for what God has done. Make it a goal of your life, friends, to live and to speak the praise of God. And that speaking of praise, by the way, that's one of the major reasons why we're here at a time like this, right? We gather as a body to do this. Can you praise God at home? Sure you can. Can you praise God on your own? Yeah. But that praise does not compare with the praise God has ordained that we offer as the gathered church, as the body of Christ, as brothers and sisters who are as different as could be. But we still praise the one true God, each of us having the Spirit of God living within us. That's good stuff. Now, as the angels do as well, though, we need to learn to do a better job of speaking God's blessing to the people of God too. Isn't that nice that the angel does that? The angels say, peace to you with whom God is pleased. Wouldn't it be great if Christians learned how to speak peace and blessing to one another? I mean... We're the people of God. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Friends, I need this as much as you need this. We need to learn to think, when we think of people, when we speak of people or to people, may God bless you. We need to speak that blessing because as we see in the scriptures, we see that regularly God chose to record that the people of God spoke blessing of God to one another. You might think about that. You might think about, is my mouth more often a blessing to others or is it more often filled with something else? Do you with your mouth build up others and direct them to the Lord or do you with your mouth speak ill of others and tear others down? Does that mean we never say something negative? Of course it doesn't. If if we have to call out sin, we have to call out sin. But we need to be a blessing filled people all right let's see the reaction of the shepherds here one more point here for this point five take the good news with you to your everyday life you'll see where we get there in a moment but take the good news with you to your everyday life that's going to be the learning point here 15 to 20 when the angels went away from them into heaven the shepherds said to one another let us go over to bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, guys, there's stuff I love about the shepherds. There really is right here. The shepherds hear the most incredible news from the angels, and you know what they do? They do something with it. They don't sit still, right? They don't say, wow, that was interesting, and then roll over and take a nap. They hear the greatest news that they've ever heard in their lives. They hear the news of the birth of the Savior. And what do they do? They got to get up and go see. And when they get up and when they go, they don't get up and go slow. They went with haste. These guys wanted to see this. And let me simply say this. If somebody truly believes in Jesus today, if somebody truly believes in Jesus any day, you're going to go to Jesus quickly. When the Lord transforms your heart, you rush to Jesus in faith. And these folks, they're not, they're not wasting a moment to get to see what the angels have told them about. Well, the angels told them, go look in Bethlehem. They knew what time to go to. They said, go find a child in a manger. They had a pretty easy search to conduct here, right? I mean, how many babies in mangers do you think were laying around that night? And so the shepherds, they go and they find Mary and they find Joseph. They find the newborn Christ child and they and they say to everybody who was there and i would guess that it's probably more than mary and joseph at this point because i mean this woman just had a baby probably all kinds of people are coming to check this out um they tell mary and joseph exactly what they heard from the angels and everybody who hears the news from the shepherds they're amazed at what god was up to mary's like wow and she's just treasuring all this in her heart everything she's heard Verse 20 then says, Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them by the angel. This last bit, this is the piece that I'm thinking about for us to learn from. 
Is it a surprise that the shepherds went to find the baby? Really? Not really, right? An angel said, go find him. You're like, okie dokie. Now, once they got there, is it a surprise that they told the family whose evening they just inserted themselves into why they came? I mean, think about it. You are a shepherd. You've been in the field. All of a sudden, you go and you find this lady with her newborn baby. You're probably going to tell her why you're there, right? That would be awkward otherwise. They were sent by angels. They've got a message to tell. This is good. But then, but then, once they've gone, once they've seen, once they've told, once they've marveled, they went back to the hillside. They went back to their normal, everyday lives, but they were not the same. They returned to work and they praised God. And let me just ask you, what would your guess be? Do you think they kept this to themselves? I doubt it very seriously, don't you? And if these shepherds did not keep this news to themselves, which I doubt they did, then these shepherds were some of the first evangelists. They were some of the first people after the birth of Jesus to tell other people about the coming of the Christ. And if you, dear friends, have experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ, you should be a little bit like these shepherds because they took the news of what they had seen to their daily lives, their everyday lives. And that's something you should do too. If Christ has saved your soul, you've got good news to take to to work, to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family. Don't think for a moment you could experience the grace of God in Jesus and then turn around and be the same person you were before. You could never accomplish such an empty thing as to experience Jesus for real and then go back and be ordinary. If you've experienced Jesus for real, you will be changed and you will, you must take the news of Jesus with you into your life. Now, last point, we'll be done. Sixth point, I told you I thought there were six. Find salvation and hope in one name, Jesus. Find salvation and hope in one name, Jesus. Look at verse 21, kind of a little closing here and leading into the next section. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he he was called Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Luke tells us one more little important detail in case you need it. On the eighth day after the child was born, it was time for him to be circumcised. It was time for him to be officially named. And the child was named in accordance with the command of God. They called him Jesus. Now, the funny thing about the name Jesus is it was actually a moderately common name in those days. It's a derivative of the name Joshua. And it means the Lord saves Is that not a great name for the child born to Mary? I mean, could you get a better name than that for the kid? The Lord saves, of course. He is the Lord. He is God with us. He came to earth to seek and to save the lost. He is our only Savior. He is Jesus, the Lord, our Savior. Now, why is it important that we know the name of this child? Many people in the world around us don't think this name is important. Many people around us don't think that a Savior is even needed. And other people around us think, hey, if there is a need for a Savior, they think any Savior would do. 
Many people in the world around us would argue, oh, there are lots of different ways to God. You can just pick your own way to God. And they're like, you know, just, just be, be sincere and find a way that feels good to you. But let me assure you, it certainly matters in whose name you put your trust. Right? If you trust in any religion, any person, anything other than Jesus, you've put your trust in a false and empty hope. If you think you don't need a Savior, you have misunderstood who you are, who God is, and how to be right with God. John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself tells us, we can't get to God if we don't go through Jesus. Now, guys, if Jesus says there's no way to God but through Jesus, what do you think the way is for you to get to God? It's Jesus. You think that makes the name of Jesus important? In Acts 4, 11, and 12, Peter says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So yes, the name of Jesus is an important name. There is no other name, not one at all under heaven that will bring you or me salvation. A Buddha could not save. Muhammad cannot save. Confucius will not save. No prophet of no other religion in the world will ever save. And you, no matter what your name is, you cannot save yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. You have to be saved by God if you're going to be freed from the wrath of God. And if you are to be saved, you can only be saved in the name of, in the person of, through the work of Jesus and Jesus alone. So let me ask you, friends, to think about this. Are you saved? Do you know Jesus? What does that mean? It means at least this that you've become a child of God through Jesus. How do you do that? Recognize your sin. Recognize you need the grace of God. Do you recognize that you're a sinner? Do you know you need the grace of God or you're in deep, deep trouble? I really hope you do. But what do you do once you recognize? You don't just sit there in that puddle of, oh no. You confess your sin to God. Lord God, I'm a sinner and I need mercy. I'm dead otherwise. And believe in Jesus. Believe he's God in the flesh. Believe that he came to save your soul. Believe that he died and rose again. Believe that he's your only chance. Turn away from your sin and ask God to give you grace in Jesus. And this is the good news. If you will have faith in Jesus fully entrusting yourself and your soul to Jesus for salvation, he promises he will forgive you of your sin, he'll change your life, and he'll make you a child of God. So remember this. That angel broke the, spoke the blessing of God's peace upon who? All with whom God is pleased. You want to be one of those people? Would you like to be one of those with whom God is pleased? The only way that's going to happen is if you have come to Jesus, through Jesus, for grace, and trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for your forever. If you do come to Jesus, if you do, first of all, that's a sign God has done glorious work in your life. If you do, you, like the shepherds, 
can be changed by the good news of Jesus. You can celebrate the good news of Jesus. You can celebrate not only the birth of the Savior, but you celebrate the salvation that the Savior brings. And you can take the good news of the Savior into a world, a dark world, a lost world, a hurting world, a broken world. You take the news of that Savior into a world that desperately, desperately needs to hear his name and come to know him too so they can celebrate him too. So friends, let's celebrate, love, follow, and share Jesus this season. Fair enough? Let's pray together. Lord, it is good to think these stories through. I pray that the familiarity is not going to keep us from the worship. I pray that we will know Jesus, celebrate Jesus, magnify Jesus, be changed by Jesus. I pray that folks here will be saved by Jesus. Lord, the truth is, we need your great grace and peace. Help us be honoring to you as we think about our dear, dear Savior. Help us turn from sin. Help us grow. Help us worship. Help us have joy. Make us, remake us, God, into people who honor you in all things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.